Good morning. I bring you greetings from Calvin uh, Christian Reformed Church in Ottawa, my home church. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to be with you this morning. I have already been blessed uh, by worshiping with you, um, so thank you very much for that. I had, uh, your, your consistory is uh, brave. Um, I've only been licensed to exhort since March in the Calvin Christian Foreign Church, so uh, they're taking a bit of a risk in uh, offering me this opportunity. But, um, I actually gave uh, Cole, right? I gave Cole two options in terms of uh, sermon, so he chose, so you can blame him if you don't like it. <laughs> Anyway, before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, it is a truly amazing thing that we have your word to guide and direct us. So, Father, as we read your word, I pray that it would guide and direct us and comfort us and encourage us and challenge us and and all those things at once. So, Father, I pray that anything that I say that is not from you would be quickly forgotten. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you. Amen. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the life of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The word of the Lord. You must all have Anglican roots as well. I want to begin by telling you the story of Hani Mikhailovich. Hani Mikhailovich was a major in the Soviet uh, Union's army. He was a very faithful party member, sat at the front of all the party meetings, 
His wife was the party secretary. That was until one day he heard the gospel on a short, shortwave radio broadcast. Suddenly things didn't seem quite right in the party. He started becoming less active in the meetings, sitting at the back instead of at the front. And one day he couldn't even bring himself to go at all. His commanding officer brought him in to ask him why. His response was simple. I have become a Christian. The next day, he was publicly stripped of his title as major, humiliated in front of his family, and assigned the job of janitor. His commanding officer said to him, this is the last time I will ever address you. Your job is to clean. This water's mine. I thought of Major Michalowicz as I was reading through John chapter 1. I thought there was probably many times too when John himself said things that he knew was going to cause him all kinds of trouble. It got me thinking, well, why? Why do people say things that they know are going to cause them all kinds of trouble? For John, those words meant exile and eventual imprisonment. And yet, as he pens his gospel, there is no sign of regret. His people have rejected him and exiled him. The Gentiles have imprisoned him. And yet there is no capitulation in John. There is a defiant, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, in case you didn't get the not-so-subtle reference to Genesis. So what causes people to speak things that they know will cause them trouble? I can think of at least three things that must be there. First, they must believe that it's true. Very few people would die for what they know to be a lie. Second, they must believe it to be of great importance. Cause some trouble here. I, I believe the Toronto Maple Leafs are the best team in the NHL. But I'm not going to die for that. It's just not that important. And third, they must believe in its success. Or at least its potential of success. Probably another reason why dying for the Maple Leafs is not in my future. But. In the opening chapter, John throws down the challenge of the Incarnation. This is an event you don't get to ignore. You don't get to walk away and go on as if nothing had happened. Nothing could be more important than God coming down to earth. And what is more, says John, I know it is true. For John, there is nothing more important than the incarnation. For through it, God is present to us, personally revealed in the word made flesh. And in that word made flesh is that life and light which is there for all mankind. John, one, if you want, is a literary equivalent of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and shaking you. This is something you'll never get to walk away from. Wake up. God came to earth in the form of a man. And nothing will ever be the same. I'm intrigued in John chapter 1 with the, the words that John chooses to describe Jesus. Five words in particular. Word, light and life, grace and truth. With your indulgence, so there's much more that could be said about this in this passage, I'm going to focus on those five words in particular. So first, word. Word denotes message. For the Jews, the Torah was God's personal message to them. Right? It was what they centered their lives around. So in some sense, for the Jews, John was saying, you... Value the Torah, that's great. But the Torah has now become flesh, has come to you. How much bigger is that message than what was given to you in the Torah? 
For the Greeks, the word or the logos was their way to wisdom. And again, John to them is saying, you value wisdom and that is good, but wisdom has now become flesh. How much greater is that opportunity now to seek wisdom? As John says at the end of our passage, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, has made him known. God knew the enormity of what he was doing in the incarnation, and so he sent a messenger. His name was John. And you think about what these, what the disciples had to come to believe. I don't think, it shouldn't surprise us perhaps. Sometimes I, I feel like we think that the disciples are slow. Right? They take forever to come to the acknowledgement of the truth. Um, I've often wondered what it would have been like to be James, the brother <laughs> of Jesus, to come alongside him and, and slowly begin to realize that the one you grew up with was in fact God incarnate. So if you like, John the Baptist is God's way of saying, are you sitting down? Because I'm about to do something the likes of which you will scarcely believe and struggle to comprehend. Now convincing you of the incarnation is not the purpose of my sermon, but if you do have doubts about it, you could do worse than read through the Gospel of John itself. I would challenge you that it is worth struggling with those doubts. Why is it that so many people, including many people you know, have found it so uh, fulfilling that they're willing to stake their whole life on its truthfulness? Our familiarity with the Incarnation, I think, has dulled us to just how earth-shattering it really is. Now, the the second great uh, sort of surprise is the manner of the Incarnation. Given the abject depravity and cruelty displayed by humanity through the years, it would not have been at all surprising if the God of the universe had come in vengeance. But the wonder of the Incarnation is is that it is a message of hope. As John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What did Jesus mean to say that in him was life itself? The audacious claim of the gospel is that in taking up our cross, we lose nothing of value and gain everything that's worth living for. In him was life, so conversely, apart from him is only death. We can pretend for a while, for sure. We can find satisfaction in fleeting happiness snatched in moments of friendship, in the toys that money can buy, or even the more substantial love that knits husband and wife together. But they are fleeting, if not linked to something more, more permanent. Two things, I believe, cause these other material sources of happiness to be insufficient in the end. First, when one is confronted by one's own depravity. Not just a recognition that you do things wrong on occasion, but rather the knowledge that you are, in truth, incapable of goodness. One of my favorite authors is a guy called Charles Williams who wrote that repentance, like love, is is only ours for fun. Essentially, we, we don't and can't. Either a gift, the ability to do, the, to love and to repent. Second, when one is confronted by the enormity of suffering in the world. The mathematician and philosopher Pascal wrote, What can a man do? He wants to be great and finds that he is small. 
he wants to be happy and finds that he is unhappy. He wants to be perfect and finds that he is riddled with imperfections. He wants to be the object of men's affections and esteem and sees that his faults deserve only their dislike and contempt. Imagine for a moment that you're walking around for a day with a bubble over your head that broadcasts to everyone you meet everything that you think. Which one of us would not run and hide? In those moments when we're faced with one's own self, one is forced to ask along with Paul, who will save me from this body of death? And it is only grace alone that allows us to say again with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. The losing of our life that is demanded by the gospel is this relinquishment of trying to make something of ourselves, of trying to see ourselves as worthy in our own right apart from God. The gospel does not offer that. What it offers, as John Juan puts it, is the right to become, or the power to become, children of God. But note how we gain that power. Because we are children born not of natural descent, as if it was our right, nor of a human decision, as if we could will ourselves to that power, but born of God, a free gift that can only be accepted, not earned. How foolish it is that so often we jeopardize becoming children of God for earthly good. Yet we do all the same. Our sight set on things temporary rather than things eternal. Suffering, too, I think, is a way of exposing to us the, the shallowness of our attempts at meaning apart from God. My father uh, used to do research on kids with cystic fibrosis. Uh, one of these kids was a boy named Stephen, who I am forever grateful for because he changed our family's life. And my dad got to know Stephen and kept in touch with him long after the research trial was over. And so he was there when Stephen, as a boy of 19, was dying. And so he went to visit him in the hospital. And knowing my father was a Christian, he said to him, it says in the Bible that if you ask anything in my name, it will be given to you. I don't want to die. What would you say to such a question? Well, my dad didn't know what to say. So he prayed very quickly. And the words of Annie Dillard came into his mind. And she, she had said, Oh yes, your needs are guaranteed in the surest, strongest words possible. But do read the fine print. He decides what your needs are. And so my dad said to Stephen, Look, perhaps what God is saying to you at this point is you have suffered enough, Stephen. It's time to come home. And Stephen, to his credit, could accept that. And his mother, much later, wrote to my father and said that he had been asking that question of everyone. And everyone had been just sort of pushing it away and saying, you're not dying, Stephen, you're not dying. Um, and so she said to him, it is a pity that you were not able to help his body, but I'm glad you were there at the end to help his soul. My father was able to offer Stephen hope, and Stephen, to his credit, was able to receive it. Christianity overwhelms our momentary temporal suffering with the sheer immensity of eternity. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus Christ is both light and life because it is only by him that we can face the immense suffering in this world and not be crushed by it. 
And it is only by him that we can face the truth of ourselves and yet have hope. Do you relate to Pascal's despair over his own soul? Repent and live in the knowledge that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Are you anxious over the many cares and stresses you are under? Pray and remember that Paul told us to present our concerns to God and that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I think that we, th- we think that to believe these promises is to trivialize either our sinfulness or our suffering. How can I be at peace in the midst of what I am going through? How can I be joyful when I continue to struggle with sin? The answer in John chapter 1 is that we have been given the power to become children of God. Neither sin nor suffering has the final word. To be sure, the process of salvation is a long one. The promised joy and peace is not ours because we are works in progress. And that's okay. God's compassion extends to those who must always be saying, I believe, help me to overcome my unbelief. But let us not give up on the promises of the gospel. Despair over our sins, our own predicament, or the general suffering in the world is not the natural state of the Christian. And when it creeps over us, as it often does, we must remind ourselves that we have been given the power to become children of God. There is a, however, a minor note in John chapter 1. In verses 10 and 11, John notes that though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. How then do we live in this now and not yet? For Christ, the living word has come, with all the hope and assurance that brings, but the world has largely rejected him. And so I think we must come to the last two words that John uses to describe Jesus um, in this opening chapter, grace and truth. Why these two words in particular? You can probably think of a lot of other words that John could have used. Love, kindness, hope, peace, forgiveness, strength, authority, power. But John chose grace and truth. When you start to read the Gospels and read all the stories of Jesus' interaction with people, you begin to see why. Take, for instance, the woman caught in adultery. Right? Jesus does not, uh, does not deny her sin, but neither does he condemn her. No, instead he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Grace and truth. Or consider the story of Jesus' visit to the house of Simon the Pharisee. Simon treats him abominably, gives him none of the normal courtesies given to a guest. There's a woman in the crowd around, apparently in those days the dinners were often, there were people on the outside of those dinners. Um, And there was a woman there who was so, perhaps because she was so uh, ashamed of the way Simon had treated Jesus, she came forward and she uh, wiped her her tears on his feet and wiped his feet with her, her hair. Jesus responds, well, so in this case, Simon is now outraged because he feels that any prophet would never allow such a woman to touch him. She has a rather sordid background. And Jesus responds to the story of the ungrateful servant. There is grace in the way that he endures what Simon, the insults of Simon, and truth in the way that he confronts Simon through the parable. And even in the confrontation, there is grace. But there is the invitation to repentance 
held out to Simon and forgiveness to the woman. Truth and grace. We have in our times, I think, somehow come to believe that one cannot both love someone and confront them. For the biblical vision of love, we have substituted a limp acceptance. Biblical love is a hard thing, a bright thing, often harming in order to heal, both demanding and revealing. As George MacDonald put it, when we say that God is love, do we teach men that their fear of him is groundless? No. As much as they fear will come upon them, possibly far more. The wrath will consume what they call themselves so that the selves God made shall appear. I love that last line. The wrath will consume what they call themselves so that the selves God made shall appear. It's important to note that I don't think John is saying that Jesus is balancing the two, grace and truth. Rather, Jesus is full of both. These things, grace and truth, are not at odds with one another, where too much of one results in too little of the other. The image that comes to my mind is of two horses pulling a plow. If, if one is, the stronger one is, the stronger the other can pull. It is only when both are strong that the plow runs straight. Neglect one and the other pulls to the side. Thus it is that the pursuit of grace without truth loses sight of grace. And the pursuit of truth without grace necessarily loses its truthfulness. Now, it's a bit risky of me to use a farming analogy as a city boy. Consider for a moment truth without grace. Truth without grace is the self-righteous Christian, delighting in pointing out the sin of the other. It is the gleeful pessimist who tells you, of course, it would all go wrong. It is the legalism of the Pharisee which so angered Jesus, adding to the burden of the simple believer. Truth without grace maintains the structure of the faith while forgetting the aim. It maintains the outward trappings of the faith that strips it of its heart. If I speak with the tongues of angels but but have not love, I am nothing. But notice how truth is lost in the process, for judgment is rarely turned inward uh, to the accuser. If it was, the barrenness of truth without grace would be revealed and lead to despair. It is an historical fact that whenever the church has neglected grace, its version of the truth has quickly descended into self-righteousness and hypocrisy. But perhaps much more tempting in our modern times is grace without truth. Grace without truth appears Christian on the outside. It is full of acceptance, welcome, tolerance, and affirmation. It is not our place to judge, says grace without truth. Grace without truth shudders at the arrogance of the self-righteous, but forgets that self-righteousness is not the only way to distort the gospel. In its effort to welcome the sinner, grace without truth whitewashes the sin. And here is where it ceases even to be grace. For if I am sick, I do not want a doctor that says I am well. Grace without truth turns out to be as barren of hope as truth without grace. We are weak and long to be strong. We are wicked and long to be righteous. How can someone offer hope who denies my weakness, denies my wickedness? It is only the poverty of our vision that tempts us to be happy with grace without truth. Not able to quite believe that we can be freed from our sin 
we settle for accepting it. And so as we give up on truth, we lose grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. They are not at odds, but are two parts of the gospel whole. We are called to live lives that are equally full of grace and truth. So in closing, let me suggest a few ideas as to how we can do that well. First, let us follow the example of our Lord. It's perhaps worthwhile to think carefully on what are the passages that give us the most discomfort. If it makes you uncomfortable that Jesus Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners, then perhaps you are in danger of seeking truth without grace. If it makes you uncomfortable that Jesus would call anyone a brood of vipers or that he would speak of eternal damnation, then perhaps you're in danger of neglecting truth in your pursuit of grace. Second, we must maintain a firm commitment to Scripture. Truth is not easy to discern. Even with Scripture as our guide, interpreting Scripture rightly can be difficult and applying it to our lives even more so. But staking a claim to the truth is a dangerous business. But not staking a claim is impossible. We have to live. Our only choice is the form of our claim to truth. We can seek to make that claim on the basis of Scripture or else, we are left in the, in the same situation as the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We are not good or wise enough for that responsibility. Third, we must have no illusions about our own sinfulness. The kind of self-righteousness that follows from grace, uh, truth without grace is hardly possible if we are fully aware of our own sin. Fourth, We must completely abandon any attempt to make something of ourselves. We are children of God by the will of God. It is a gift that must be accepted without reservation and in all humility. Pride, shame, and guilt are not characteristic of the forgiven life. Fifth, commit to seeing everyone you meet as made in the image of God, sinner though they be. We live and converse with eternal beings, besides which empires that last a thousand years are nothing. Finally, cling to the hope held out in Scripture that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let me return to Major Michalowicz, who lived out his life as a janitor, but his life was rich. In the church of some 60 people, he was a white-haired saint beloved by all. From the perspective of things temporary, his life was the poorer for his decision to declare his faith. But like John, he did not regret it. He had his sight set on things eternal and was rewarded even in this life with a life well lived. His was a life lived in the conviction that God did truly break into our world in the person of Jesus and that his coming made all the difference. His was a life lived in the conviction that even though the darkness did not understand it, neither did it overcome it. So go in hope to love and serve the Lord, living out a life full of grace and truth. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.